You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are rejoined today to continue our discussion about the harvest management of uh, white-cheeked geese in the Pacific Northwest. We are grateful to be rejoined by our two guests here, Kyle Spragans, Waterfowl Section Manager with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, and Brandon Reiches, Migratory Game Bird Coordinator for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife. Brandon and Kyle, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having us. So on the last episode, we concluded, uh, we, we wrapped up basically on our last episode, a, a broad discussion about the taxonomic issues or uh, of the white-cheeked geese that inhabit and are found in the Pacific Northwest. And we began to introduce some of the harvest management considerations uh, around this group of birds. And that's where we're going to go in some detail on this particular episode. Uh, so, Brandon, my first question I will throw to you. And I'm going to ask you just to sort of frame up for our listeners, maybe those that aren't very familiar with goose management, goose harvest management procedures. Give us the basics on how harvest management for, let's stick with white-cheeked geese, but how white-cheeked geese uh, occurs? You know, kind of as I talked about earlier, you know, with these these various populations of, of, of white cheek geese that are coming from different areas, as well as how they've evolved, you know, that they have become different and identifiable. That has just led to different management goals for all the various, various populations. And so the flyways, each of the four flyways has generally developed population management plans for these various populations of white-cheeked geese and, and other types of geese as well. And that's because those populations generally nest in a, in a localized area, migrate through a specific area, and then typically winter in a specific area. In a lot of cases, the wintering grounds may overlap, but generally the, the, the breeding grounds don't. And so it's when the wintering grounds overlap that you end up having the complexity because you have competing objectives and goals. That's kind of been the way it's, it's, it's gone for, for all of the flyways. However, it's just exceedingly complex out here because of the number of different populations that we're, that we're dealing with. I grew up uh, in southwestern Minnesota. Like I said, I, I grew up goose hunting at Lacaparo when that Lacaparo area may be familiar to a lot of those folks in, in Minnesota. After I was working for Oregon, I went back and hunted one day with my dad and the, the, the check station had a little display that talked about the complexities of Canada goose management. And they had the three kinds of, of geese that are basically present in the Mississippi flyway. And I, I just laughed, you know, it's just like, well, we got seven, we see your three and, and raise your seven, you know, so 
you know, this isn't a problem that just is germane to this flyway, but because of the the number of subspecies that we're dealing with, that's that's why it's become really complex. But on the other hand, we are we are lucky that a couple of our main drivers, the duskies, because of their very restricted population size and some of the issues that they deal with as far as um, reproduction and recruitment into the breeding population, you can tell them apart for the most part. They're big and they're dark. And then we've got our small cacklers, which yes, they're abundant, but you know they've they've gone through some issues in the past and you can generally tell them apart. They're very small um, and, and dark as well. So we are lucky on, on, on that front. There was a time when this was all a lot simpler for certain. Dusky Canada geese have been a recognized subspecies for for a long time, you know, decades and decades. Our evolution of waterfowl management in the continent, you know, really started in the late 40s into the 50s. That's when the flyway systems got going. Dusky Canada geese were recognized at that time. And in fact, our harvest regulations for geese in this area of Oregon were directed at Dusky Canada geese. And we even had um, separate reduced bag limits and shorter seasons in the in the heavily used dusky areas in the 1950s and 1960s. And that was, again, because of the concern over population status, even at that time. And, but back then, the, this was really the only geese. You know, you had duskies in Western Oregon, you know, occasionally a lesser or occasionally a taverner. Like I mentioned, those taverners started coming on in the 60s and 70s. And then things really got crazy in the 80s when you added in all of the cacklers, a declining population at that time, and and duskies really started to struggle due to the, you know, uh, Kelly may have touched on it, but, um, you know, why we're concerned about duskies is, yes, they're a restricted population, but they also have had a very difficult time over the last 35 years of producing enough young to keep their population going at a, at, a, at, a, at a strong rate. And that is actually all due to an earthquake that occurred in 1964. Um, it, it, it physically raised the Copper River Delta by several meters, um, which allowed a, a whole kind of trophic change. Um, the, the habitat changed from salt marsh to more of an upland drier marsh, trees and shrub vegetation started encroaching um, in areas that typically it would have been flooded out by, by high tides. That changed the predator community up there. You know, you, you started having, you know, predation by bears, coyotes, even wolves. The, the most significant predator of, of these geese has actually um, turned out to be bald eagles. They have probably expanded their range on the Delta because of the trees that have grown up over the last 55, 60 years since that earthquake occurred, giving eagles perch sites. Um, as soon as the eagles have perch sites, they can sit and watch. They can find duskies. They can find dusky nests. And so we've you know, gone through this uh, um, decline in dusky populations. We've had this increase in other types of wintering, wintering geese. And it has really led to a, a management conundrum where you have competing objectives. And our big competing objectives are the population status of duskies, which, you know, our decision is right now that, um, you know, with, with everything else that's going on, they essentially cannot support a, a sport harvest. 
because everything that else is going on is the agricultural damage issue that, that we face down here. So as we mentioned in previous episode, you know, potentially upwards of 300,000 geese in a, in a good year wintering here, 15,000 of those are dusky. So not, not a high number, but those multitudes of other geese are causing some significant agricultural damage issues for our farmers. And so if it was simply the, you know, the easiest thing would just be to say, we, we feel that the duskies cannot support any harvest and therefore we need to make sure duskies aren't harvested. The goose season's closed period. Right. Well, we, we can't go there because if we close the goose season on duskies, it closes, you know, on all, all geese. We end up in this situation where the farmers are just getting hammered day in and day out. And sport hunting certainly can help those agricultural producers alleviate some of the damage that's occurring, right? You put a group of hunters out in their field for the day, they're not going to have any damage that day. And then they're probably not going to have any damage, you know, in a, in a couple subsequent days, just because, you know, the geese got hazed out of there. You know, you get a little bit of population reduction from hunting, right? But that's not what we're going at when we're talking about helping the farmers. It's not a, we're trying to reduce the population to help them. It's that we're trying to use the hunting seasons as a tool to, to, to help reduce the, the incidences of damage that are, that are going on. And so that really becomes the balancing act. And certainly the third part of it is, is that, yeah, we, we want to provide some sport harvest opportunity to our hunters out there. And so we have these three kind of competing things going on. You got the population status of duskies, our desire to provide sport hunting, our desire to, to help out the hunters, as well as, you know, kind of then the status and the considerations for these, for these other populations. And that's specifically the cacklers. We've got a management plan, just like we do for duskies, for the cacklers, that says we want to maintain that population at about, for the flyway, not just Oregon, um, at about 250,000. And, you know, we're actually slightly below that right now, just a little bit. And so that, you know, even becomes, you know, a third consideration that we've got to take into account. It's all a big stew. <laughs> we've all got to take a bite, I guess, is maybe the, the best way to put it. Um, but it really is a, is a complex situation and, and there's not a lot of easy answers. Throughout uh, any of these episodes that, that are on this podcast and really any of our communications about waterfowl management in North America, we speak repeatedly about our use of science to inform our decision, inform our understanding of how waterfowl populations work, how they respond to habitat variation, how they respond to the effects of harvest. We, we base as many of our decisions as possible on a high level of science. And for those issues where we don't have full understanding, we base it on what information we have is the best available information. So science is a persistent, you know, reliable scientific information is a persistent theme in waterfowl management in, in North America. And it becomes really important. And my read of things here, it becomes really important in these types of issues where we have uh, different subspecies of geese, as we've talked about here, that breed in different areas uh, and that may combine on the wintering grounds, uh, as well as individual breeding populations of the same species, as may be the case for some other, uh, for some species. So from the perspective, uh, Kyle, I'll direct this to you, from the perspective of white-cheeked geese, 
their, their harvest management in the Pacific Northwest. As we look back through the years, what have been some of the most important tools that we've used to understand the different the existence of different goose populations, how they where they migrate through, uh, and how we would go about trying to construct some harvest regulations um, that accommodate the needs of those populations while providing that recreational sport harvest. And I'm thinking about things such as net collars. When we think about geese, that's one of the net collars in geese are about as popular and and um, frequently discussed as our leg bands in ducks based on my read of things. But in addition to net collars and bands, I'm also thinking about any type of telemetry. What 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 goes into understanding these populations, where they exist, where they go, and how we need to work around those things relative to those specific populations? That's a very good question. And certainly this complex of geese, this white sheep goose complex is a really good test of (laughs) you need to to use everything uh, because it depends on um, sort of the circumstances around how how readily can you get some some of that information? Brandon made mention of of sort of those three considerations. We're trying to conserve the population itself. We're trying to provide opportunity, and then of course we're trying to uh, opportunity to to harvest, and then we're trying to you know balance that with some of the social economic considerations in different areas. And that's certainly where that flyway co management model kicks in, right? My considerations in Washington are not necessarily the same in Oregon, certainly aren't the same in California. And of course, all of this, we're talking about Alaska. So our 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 equivalent up in Alaska is thinking about all of these populations in a completely different way and sort of trying to sit down together, lay out this information that we have available to us. The best information that we have available to us uh, is is critical to that. So So how do we get that information? Brandon also mentioned that some of these populations in terms of where they're breeding, for example, the Aleutian geese, they're 3,000 miles off of the mainland of Alaska out on the Aleutian chain. There is no way that we will ever be able to monitor the breeding population in terms of sort of nests on the ground <laughs> uh, side of things. And so because of that, each one of these has to, has required some level of monitoring that might differ depending on which population we're focused on. So you mentioned net collars, certainly banding and just the federal metal bands and net collars have been a, a big piece of that, particularly for the cacklers, the geese, and the Aleutian geese. Uh, in, in all three of those cases, we're using net collars to either establish some sort of relationship between when we count so many here, how many does that actually uh, translate to in terms of a population estimate, or in the case of duskies, we're using the neck collars to actually track annual survival rates. Uh, we, we have a massive resighting effort on the wintering grounds between Washington and Oregon, where we have uh, biologists and technicians running around out there to try and resight as many of these collars as we can, because that is what feeds into our ability to derive, well, is survival steady? Is it declining? Is something wrong? Um, In other cases, we do have an an ability to actually monitor the population from a a breeding index. The cacklers that are out on the Yukon-Kuskokun Delta, that coastal Western Alaska region, 
There are aerial surveys that are um, complemented by ground nest surveys that allow us to get some inference about how is that population doing, how widespread is it. Um, in 2011, they used net collars uh, up there on the refuge. They deployed them. Technicians and biologists recite them on the wintering grounds. And that allowed the sort of correction, the sort of when we when they count so many on the ground from the plane, we see this many down in the wintering areas. And so that allows us to actually get a, you know, a, a better number that we believe is closer to a population estimate. Part of the flyway process is basically working collaboratively together to understand what monitoring is possible, what monitoring actually gives us the information to consider that this, those decisions, weigh the, well, what is the what is the status? What is the trend? Are we talking about an increasing population, a stable population, or a declining population? And then where it really comes together is each one of the states has to figure out, okay, like I have this multiple layers of consideration. I, I, obviously, Western Canada geese, the ones that breed here in our states, are a major contributor to the overall harvest. So that's where a lot of that you know interest in harvest opportunity lies. But then you have to ask, okay, do we have duskies on top of that? Okay, that's going to require some restrictive considerations. Do we have other geese that we have less certainty around their status that might concern us about how liberal, how many of the days can we really take advantage of? And the other tool that we have at our disposal in terms of a harvest strategy side is that similar to the ducks, uh, there, there's the ability to create goose zones, specific areas or regions of the state where you're trying to cater some level of management decision. Maybe that's bag limits. Maybe that's when the days of the season are allowed. Um, you're trying to cater that to the actual goose opportunities that exist. And so certainly this shared Southwest Washington, Northwest um, zone of, of Oregon where we have these seven subspecies of white cheek geese, all of that comes together in sort of that decision matrix and us trying to balance sort of how do we, how do we accommodate all three of those objectives and goals that Brandon was talking about? One of the, I, I'm going to guess most well-known examples of how harvest managers create special zones or special seasons to enable and to allow harvest on one particular group of birds without exposing other more sensitive birds to to that type of uh, harvest would be uh, the early resident Canada goose seasons that we see in the at least in the eastern U.S. We see a lot of that. Um, that's that type. Those seasons, my understanding. Is correct again. I have to caveat all of these types of things by saying I don't. I don't have a seat at the harvest table. I've never been an active participant in much of the harvest management uh, processes. But uh, my understanding is that those early seasons are designed to enable harvest of those uh, those problematic resident Canada goose uh, populations at a time when there's uh, little. Uh, little risk of any other subspecies or populations of Canada geese being in those regions. Do you, in that vein, do you, do y'all have those early season resident Canada goose? I guess they would probably be the Western Canada goose, based on Brandon's previous description. Do y'all have those early season um, opportunities in Washington and Oregon? That's correct. Yeah, most of the Pacific Flyway states take advantage of some 
some version of that. And uh, it depends on how many zones you have in your state. Washington, we have five zones. And so the dates might change a little bit depending on which one of those zones. But the, the intent is exactly what you're getting at, is that there we have uh, Western Canada geese as our only nesting goose in the state. And to try and separate out the overlap of, okay, these ones that nest here versus these ones that are coming down from Alaska, uh, typically in Washington, those dates are set very early in September, um, extra- extraordinarily early in September in some some years, just to try and avoid that overlap of, of, of crossing into the sort of migrant presence on the landscape. As I'm listening to kind of going back through my head about what I, what I said, it, it occurs to me that I probably have to apologize to the harvest managers out there. A lot of them are probably wishing that I would have not used the term resident Canada geese. I think I've heard strong preference for the use of term temperate nesting geese, at least here in the among my Mississippi Flyway counterparts. Do you get that issue out west, uh, Kyle and Brandon? Is that do you prefer temperate nesting geese as opposed to resident? I don't think that's as big of an issue out here. I think for the most part, we we just still call them call them resident candidates. <laughs> I, I know I know there's some been some terminology you know changes in the, in the you know especially the mid continent area and, and some other things. But yeah, we if you say resident goose, we know what you're talking about. Okay, all right. <laughs> it is a good point. I mean, resident Canada goose. So a lot of times, you know, the the inference is just that they nest in the lower 48, right? And we, it's an interesting one because on the east side of Washington, we do have consistent and repeated harvest records from geese getting harvested up in Alberta because actually there is this sort of molt migration phenomenon that goes on. And so it, it does, it can't, you know, people think of it more in that sort of urban, uh, sort of urban problematic standpoint when someone says the term resident Canada goose, but but yeah, Brand is right. We, for us, it usually means the one that nests in our state <laughs> and not nests. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Problematic aspect of it. Let's transition to a discussion of uh, some of the um, harvest regulations around dusky Canada geese. And you guys can filter into this particular conversation other aspects of white-cheeked goose harvest management as you want to. But obviously, duskies are a big part of the conversation out there. A lot of the regulations in place are geared around around that subspecies. So, Brandon... Just walk us through or or highlight some of the measures that have been taken through the years to enable that harvest or to enable harvest of other Canada geese without uh, or trying while trying to minimize the exposure and, and hunting mortality to dusky Canada geese. I know there have been several different um, approaches taken. So just give us an idea on the history of those uh, those tools and techniques used. So, as I previously mentioned, it was in the early 1980s that, that duskies really started to crash. You know, essentially that lack of poor production, you know, after the what happened with the earthquake, you know, kind of caught up to them. Uh, recruitment 
um, and production of young and then recruitment into the, into the adult population, you know, was dismal for a number of years. And anytime you have that happening, you're going to get, you're going to get a population decline. And so at that time, you know, that was occurring, they were just a goose, right? So they had, you know, there was a, a goose season in Western Oregon and Western Washington. It was X number of days long. It was, it was shorter than it is now, but it was just a goose season. And so in 1984, due to the population status of dusky Canada geese, essentially the, the flyways at Kyle and I's level, along with the Fish and Wildlife Service, kind of um, said, you know, you know, we, we're recommending a closed goose season. No, no, no harvest opportunity. Well, that's really unpopular with folks. And so once it got to the council level, this idea of, hey, these duskies are different enough that we think hunters can avoid them and still harvest other types of geese. And so therein was born the permit zone check station quota system. And it, it grew over time. At first, it was just a very small area of Oregon and Washington, much smaller than we're talking about. Uh, just basically the Savvy Island area and adjacent uh, Ridgefield Refuge area in Washington. And it, it grew over time. And, and, and the deal was, is that there was a quota on dusky Canada geese. All geese that were harvested by hunters had to be brought into a check station daily um, so that managers could classify them to the various subspecies. If you shot a dusky Canada goose, your permit to hunt that season was invalidated. So you were done hunting any geese for the season. And to even be able to hunt, you had to pass an identification course. At, at first, it was just you had to take a course. It wasn't necessarily a test, but you just had to show up somewhere, have somebody tell you about these various types of geese, so on and so forth. And then you were able to go. Uh, several years later, it actually became an exam that you had to pass, an identification exam. Um, and that's actually continued to this day. So if, if you took a dusky, permit became invalid for the season. Obviously, the quota, the overall quota went up by one. Uh, hopefully, you didn't take more than one. You were legally allowed to take one. It was not a violation to take a dusky. You got one for the year. That was your permit. But then, of course, if you took your one, especially on purpose, you're being a little selfish because now the quota went, got triggered by, you know, and at, at some point, the entire season closes for everybody if too many get taken. So a lot of hunters actually viewed it as a closed season because they didn't want to take one and end their hunting and, and they didn't want to risk ending everybody's hunting. So that was the, the permit zone check station. And that basically went on in some form or another from 84 until, until 2015, you know, the, the number of duskies in the overall quota might've varied depending on their population status. Um, not generally from year to year, but you know, th there was a time when the, the quota went up because the duskies went over, you know, 15,000 or 12,500 or something. And then it went down because the duskies dropped below a certain level. But generally things went along as smooth as they could. It, the, the biggest hang up though, was that every goose you shot, even if it was just one little cackler that, you know, and let's say you, you know, you shot it on your, you, you know, we you lived on a farm and you shot it on your farm the nearest check station was 25 miles away and you, you just shot one cackler. 
you had to bring it to the check station. And, and the rules that, that, that were implemented to, to do that is every day that you hunted, you had a blank harvest card. And immediately after taking a goose, you've got to write ink on that harvest card. I just shot a goose. And once you write on it for a day, it's only good for that day. The only way to get a new one for a subsequent day is to go to the check station. It was a system where it worked from a harvest management standpoint. We kept dusky harvest low, but it was a heavy, heavy burden on the sport hunting public and, and likely burdensome enough that it was discouraging hunters from even participating. And it was probably encouraging some of the hunters to just say, I'm just shooting geese and I ain't going to the check station and I'll take my chances of, of getting caught. And so it's, it's always been unpopular with the hunters. You know, it, it, it eventually did encompass the entire region. We basically had no, no more closed areas except a very, very tiny portion of Tillamook County that still exists. The refuge, some of the national wildlife refuges are closed as some of ours, as our state lands, but from a, from just private lands of the, of the state, saying you can't hunt geese out on these farm fields. Uh, we really don't have that anymore. Brandon, was that check station approach in place for both uh, Oregon and Washington? Was. Uh, and, and was it implemented similarly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we've through, through the federal process for, for, for what we call our Northwest permit zone here in Oregon and, and Washington's Southwest permit zone on, on their side of the Columbia, it's been the same federal regulations. So we've implemented essentially mere identical programs over time. However, so, so we did that for a long time and that all included this time frame when cackling geese, our little cacklers became much more abundant and they began driving the system from a harvest standpoint. That's what most people were shooting. And they also began driving the system from an agricultural damage standpoint. Duskies had been doing okay. You know, they're, they're, they're always, they're always going to be a small population. And it's debatable in the current landscape of our wintering goose flocks, if we could ever have a general sports season on duskies, simply because we've got enough of these other geese that we can have long liberal seasons, but we don't have enough duskies to have a long liberal season, even if they were probably producing enough young. Um, back in the 50s and 60s, when they didn't have a recruitment problem, our seasons were not nearly as long as they are now. And we did not have the high bag limits that we do now. So you know, that's debatable if we ever got to that place where duskies were doing good enough. But we, we felt that duskies were doing well enough, that their population was stable enough, that we could close, get rid of the check station system. Again, that was the burden on hunters was having to go to a check station every day. You know, sometimes it literally was a 50 mile round trip for some hunters. Some hunters, it was easy. You might drive by it on the way home. What's the big deal? Um, and of course, it was burdensome from the from the agency standpoint. You know, in Oregon, we were hiring nine seasonal employees a year to run these check stations. It's all they did is sit in the check station, look at geese during the hunting season. So when we revised the dusky management plan, um, starting in about 2012, I think is when the discussions really got going. Oregon and in Washington, we made a push to change the way that we did business when it came to dusky harvest management and really harvest management in this whole, in these in these permit zones, which you know is related to duskies. And so at that time, we actually closed the season completely for duskies. 
you know, we, we prove through time that you can identify these things. The hunters can generally avoid them. We know mistakes are going to happen. We know that same thing happens with, you know, low pintail bag limits or even, you know, 15 years ago when it was, you know, pintails were closed for portions of the season. So we, we know mistakes happen, but generally people can avoid um, harvesting duskies, especially when all these other subspecies are so abundant, especially the cacklers. So we close the season for duskies. And as soon as the season's closed, there's no need for a quota. And if there's no need for a quota, there's no need for check stations. And so it, it became a much simpler season to administer. We no longer had to require hunters to go to check stations. We still require the, the ID test. And so, uh, like we mentioned earlier, you know, Kelly's, Kelly's helped us out with some of our ID materials. We have those online. We even had a very old video that's still out there that that um, Kyle and I's predecessors put together in the 1990s, talking about the issues, talking about how to identify these birds. So we've got materials out there for folks to hopefully at least realize that give them some information on how to identify them. Hopefully they're also hunting with, you know, they're not just entirely new to the game, right? Somebody takes you out that knows the ropes. But even if they are new to the game, you know, putting the emphasis on there that, you know, if it's if it's a relatively large Canada goose, especially if it's dark and it honks, you know, like a deep honking Canada goose, just don't shoot it. You know, focus on those small geese, um, smoke, focus on the cacklers. And, and so far, it seems to, you know, have been successful. Yes, we've had some incidences where, you know, law enforcement has uncovered people, you know, trying to sneak a dusky out of the field. Um, but that happened in the check station days, too. And so, you know, basically what we what we hoped we were doing was trading the potentially lawful harvest of duskies, but then the unlawful not going to check stations, hopefully, you know, probably just trading a very small amount that was going on and just saying, you know, now it's now it's just closed period. And if you want to take your chances sneaking them out, you know, law enforcement, you know, has got a good chance of getting you um, but we don't think that we've increased dusky harvest by doing what we did to, to any, you know, large degree that's having a, a detriment to the population. So if a if a hunter harvests a dusky Canada goose and they are checked by a conservation officer, they are given a citation. Do they lose their permit for the remainder of that year? What all goes along with uh, with the violation of in harvesting a dusky uh, nowadays? So, so at least in Oregon for, you know, so, you know, the, if, if the law enforcement officer, um, it's kind of, we're kind of strange out here. Right? We, we, we don't really have conservation officer in Oregon. We're one of the only states where our, our Oregon state police actually have a law enforcement, a wildlife law enforcement, fish and wildlife law enforcement branch. So, um, out here we, we call them, we call them troopers. Um, but so if a trooper uh, finds you with a dusky or if a Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement out there, you're certainly subject to citation. And again, that's that's up to them, right? You can get a warning for speeding. You can get a you know warning for unlawful harvest too. So you're subject to citation. And then, you know, we we do hope that that, that information is passed on to us because if you have taken a dusky, you, you know, you've you've shown that, you know, you, you know, you potentially do need to take that test again. And so we have the ability to revoke those people if the law enforcement officer, you know, wants them. And, and that, that becomes the, the crux of the issue is that, you know, there's no requirement for them to come talk to us and say, this person took a dusky, 
but but if if they do notify us, they are invalidated in the system as part of one of our rules, and they would have to retake the test in a subsequent year. Kyle, I have a couple of questions here for you, uh, and I guess this will start with that same question uh, as it relates to what happens if a hunter harvests a dusky Canada goose in the state of Washington and they are um, and they're caught. Uh, what's the process? I mean, are, are they subject to the same citation and then loss of the permit as Brandon described? Correct. Yeah, they would be subject to citation. They would they would their card. We we still make them carry a card harvest record card with them their card would be invalidated and then they would basically lose privilege for the rest of that that season um and then they would have to retake the test to be able to to be authorized the, the following season again so kyle my next question for you was to just talk of, or i guess request to you was to get you to talk a bit about the permit zones we've we've mentioned them already multiple times in the the identification test um kelly spoke about those as as did brandon but is there anything that we're missing with regard to these permit zones where are they and uh, in in each of the states what is the situation with regard to canada goose or white-cheeked goose harvest outside of the permit zone so i guess a couple of questions anything we're missing with regard to the permit zones and then outside of those permit zones what does canada goose harvest opportunity look like yeah there's nothing really to add i mean the we we keep talking about the different um subspecies and and the uh and sort of the considerations about about them. Um, the reality is, is in terms of a bag limit, uh, it when they eliminated the need for taxations and kind of having the sub bag limit for duskies, when that all went away, it is just one bag limit. It, it is a it is a at least on our side. It's, oh well, both sides. It's four Canada cackler together. It's the white cheeked goose bag limit. Um, and then there are separate bag limits for white fronts and snow geese. The only difference is, is that within these permit zones, we're requiring people to go through this step of actually taking this identification test. And at least on the Washington side, we make them carry this specific permit with them that says, yes, you are allowed to hunt in this zone. Outside of that, the only difference is, is um, that they're not required to take that test. They, the bag limit same, at least in Washington, uh, regardless of which zone you're in. You don't get the overlap of the seven species, with the exception of over in the Columbia Basin, the eastern side of Washington. We do have western tabs and lessers all kind of mixed in together. Um, but we we think about how to, how to lay out that season differently because of that. And so the different zones have that emphasis of what goose types do you anticipate hunters to encounter. But the within the permit zone, it's just that requirement of the of the ID and then and basically a follow up to try and derive a better estimate of total harvest out of that zone. So the permit zones and the restrictions therein are driven solely by the presence of dusky Canada geese in those zones, right? That that is that is true. Yep. The difference is is that the permit zone has a a closed subspecies and the others don't. And so to try and draw the line between, okay, do you actually realize what that means? Uh, we make them go through an identification course so that, that, that we basically said it as many times as we can. Duskies are closed. Duskies are closed. If you're in this zone, don't shoot a dusky, right? And outside of that, yes, the considerations are not, not 
anywhere near the same. It's just a Canada goose bag limit. One question for each of you out of curiosity here, we're talking about this permit zone. Uh, do you have an idea of the number of permittees, maybe offhand, that you that you have in your zone? And then what's the harvest that you see out of that permit zone? Uh, Brandon, I'll go to you first. Yeah, so the, the total number of permittees, I, I don't have at the tip of my tongue. So the, the, you know, the permit is good until you take a dusky, and most people don't. So there are thousands and thousands of, of, of hunters in our system that have the ability to get their goose permit. They just don't anymore. Certainly o- over 20,000 people have, have taken and passed this test in, in Oregon. But we do require um, you know, folks annually to get a goose permit. And you know, it's, it's, it's cost them two bucks. And really what it is, is, is them saying, I'm gonna potentially hunt in the permit zone uh, for geese this year. And, you know, now you have the ability to know that, know that and survey me. And so really it becomes a survey stratification, um, question. So last year in the permit zone in Oregon, 5,570 people got their goose permit. When we did follow up surveys with a random sample of those people, only about half of them actually hunted. So last year we estimated about 2,700 permit holders hunted. But we do know for whatever reason, if it's a regulations confusion or complexity, there are a bunch of people who are hunting in our permit zone who don't have the goose permit. You know, they've taken the test, but maybe they're confused about whether they actually need to get a new permit every year, that $2 permit, and they do. But we've got almost another thousand people who are hunting geese um, that that haven't picked up their permit. And it's not almost a thousand. Uh, last year we estimated uh, seven hundred and forty-three. So you know, one in five people in our permit zone aren't getting their permit, and that would be you know for the folks that are listening to this. If you are an Oregon permit zone hunter, you need to make sure you have that permit because if law enforcement checks you and you don't, that's another potential citation. And so again, it's just it's just two bucks. And really what that helps us do is do surveys for, for our monitoring purposes for harvest. So again, we've got about, you know, you know, just over 3,000 people that are hunting, probably in this permit zone in Oregon for geese. Um, and they're taking a fair amount of birds. Last year we estimated uh 31,000 um geese taken in our in our permit zone. That's unadjusted for any kind of reporting bias. And we know there are certainly some biases with how hunters report their harvest, especially when you call them or email them at the you know tail end of the season and ask how many birds did you get? And they just round up, you know, they don't know the exact number. So there's certainly a, probably a bias high estimate, but about 31,000. And uh, generally about 65% of that is those small cacklers. So, um, you know, about 20,000 of those cacklers and then, you know, 15% of that is our big westerns. The taverners and lessers combined are only about 10%. And then we actually have a pretty significant snow goose harvest now in, in Northwest Oregon. Um, and about 5% of our harvest was, was, was snow geese last year. So, of course, those numbers don't include anything on duskies um, because this is a, a random telephone survey. And we wouldn't expect that if somebody did accidentally or even purposely shoot a dusky, we wouldn't expect that they'd tell us that in a telephone survey. 
Yeah. So it sounds like you have a pretty good um, hunter population of uh, people that go after uh, the white-cheeked geese. So that's that's pretty cool. Good to hear those numbers. And Kyle, what about you in terms of the number of permittees and any idea of the harvest that you see on, on these geese in, in your permit zone in Washington? Yeah. So we in Washington on our side, uh, while we do require people to have a a permit, really, that permit is in the form of a harvest record card. And so anybody that's wanting to hunt in these five southwest counties that are within this permit zone, uh, they would be required to take that test and then to get this harvest record card to have on their person while out in the field. Uh, similar to what Brandon was saying, and if they got checked and they're hunting geese uh, and they don't have that card, that would also make them subject to citation. Uh, but uh, typically, we see about 1,500 to 3,000 people that uh, request the card. And um, typically, those that actually, you know, record some days, at least attempted days of harvest, is typically less than that. Somewhere in the 1,000 to 1,500 uh, hunters that are actually actively pursuing geese down in that zone. That typically translates to about 3,500 to 4,000 Canada cackler, the white cheek geese, uh, being harvested. And similar to what Brandon said, uh, about two thirds of that, about 60 to 65%, uh, tends to be the cacklers, the small little minimal guys. We do have field checks. Uh, we have biologists and enforcement officers that do conduct field checks. Um, for species composition, so actual in-hand checks, uh, Coleman measurements to actually differentiate the subspecies. Uh, there's a very popular federal uh, national wildlife refuge, Ridgefield National Wildlife Refuge, that is a very popular spot for folks to go after um, waterfowl in general, but, but certainly an attempt at geese. Anyway, we do come across a handful of duskies that are harvested every year um, but, uh, by individuals, uh, whether they you know, intentionally did it or not, always hard to tell, but uh, we do tend to pass about a dozen through our hands, which is a vast underestimate of reality. Um, but uh, yeah, that's our typical number. And I guess the only reference for us is we, I mentioned over in the Columbia Basin, we also shoot some smaller geese. And uh, while we shoot something like three, 500 to 4,000 over in the permit zone, we shoot closer to twelve to 15,000 mixture of Tabner, Lesser, and Cackler over in the Columbia Basin. Yeah, sounds like pretty good harvest level there as well uh, outside that zone. Okay, guys, we're going to start wrapping up here. But before we do, I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to make any closing remarks. I know for a group of birds that has some restrictions around it, as those that we've discussed, is uh, will generate a number of questions for you throughout the year from your stakeholders, from your constituents. So I guess here's just an opportunity for you to, uh, you know, communicate to some of those people about about maybe the more common questions or, or concerns that you hear with regard to to this this group of birds. So Brandon, I'll go with you go to you first. Any final messages uh, regarding management around white cheeked geese? Yeah, you know, there's there's just a couple of misconceptions that that kind of always seem to persist out there um, related related specifically to duskies. And and one that I hear a lot is um, you know, hunters complaining that and, and I, this is, you know, hunters and fishermen, I think in general, it's always, you know, somebody else is getting, getting our birds or our fish or, you know, whatever. Um, and so there's this idea that subsistence users in Alaska 
you know, are, are taking duskies, you know, at will, but, but we're heavily regulated down here. And that's, that's just not the case. Um, in fact, where, where duskies come from in Alaska, there is only a very limited subsistence season up there. And it's actually, um, you know, it doesn't even in, in include white cheeked geese or their eggs. It's, it's generally, you know, a handful of uh, uh, ducks and then gull egging for, for different types of gulls. So that that one is, you know, just essentially just a, you know, a false, false, false uh, kind of statement. You know, the duskies don't have a, a subsistence harvest. They're really real only harvest is sport harvest in Alaska and sport harvest in, 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 in Oregon and Washington. And then the second one related to duskies is that they're endangered. And certainly, you know, from a hunter's standpoint, you know, when we're going through all these gyrations that you can't shoot them, you know, season's closed, um, all these extra protections and all the extra work that has been done on duskies over the decades, well, there's certainly a different degree protection and management. They have never been endangered and hopefully never will be. That's certainly one of the things we as managers are going to try our best would be to keep duskies at a population status where they would not be considered for listing um, under the Federal Endangered Species Act. Because if they were, um, our entire goose management you know, process and program here would turn on its head. Um, it would be out of Kyle and I's hands. You know, we'd be, I think, you know, probably looking at, you know, consideration of just closed goose seasons, period. You know, we used to have a closed species, the Aleutians, uh, or an endangered species, the Aleutian. And, uh, you know, there was basically no harvest of any geese in those areas for a long time. So that's just another misconception that I'd like to, you know, make sure that hunters realize that we're not talking about an endangered species here. And we're not talking about this, this uh, you know, a subsistence harvest issue. And Kyle, the same opportunity for you. Any message to your hunters? Yeah, I, I, I think just to kind of, uh, along with what Brandon was saying there, you know, remembering that dusky Canada geese, we're talking about maybe 15,000 individuals, definitely less than 20,000 individuals. And so, you know, we, between the two states alone, we know that we have enough harvest pressure potential that, yeah, that's problematic. And so are there reasons that we go to these extents to try and, um, you know, buffer any uh, detrimental consequence to duskies, but while providing those other opportunities for the more numerous cacklers? Well, yeah. And that's what we're trying to keep in our in our control. Like Brandon said, we'd rather that be a decision that the agencies are able to make rather than the decision being made for us. The other thing I would throw in there is, you know, uh, there are some differences between how Washington and Oregon operate. Uh, those opportunities, particularly how the public lands fit into that and sort of the strategies of days of the week or um, open and closed periods of the season that that come as a uh, as a result. So I would just emphasize if you are going to be uh, attempting to uh, goose hunt in those areas, by all means, please <laughs> make sure that you've read the regulations uh, relevant to your state and also the the zone, particular zone of, of that uh, harvest potential um, and just familiarize yourself with that. You know, the more educated you can be on what can and can't I do, the better of an opportunity and sort of satisfying, uh, you know, um, recreational uh, event it will be. And so uh, just encourage you to, to do your homework ahead of time and be as knowledgeable as you can before you get out in the field. 
That's probably one of my greatest fears, Kyle, is that somebody will someday run afoul of the law and they'll be speaking with a conservation officer or a trooper, as may be the case in Oregon. And they'll say, but but this dude on the Ducks Unlimited podcast said said this. And <laughs> we, certainly nothing that comes out of my mouth with respect to harvest management should be taken as uh, you know the basis for your decisions in the field. Make sure you study the regulations specific to the state in which you're going to be hunting. So uh, thank you, guys. You've been very gracious with your time here on both of these episodes and appreciate your willingness to participate in this conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot personally, and I know our listeners will as well. I'll also just kind of say that early on, I think I might have even mentioned we could possibly talk about snow geese or white fronts in this in one of these episodes. We obviously did not get to those species we there there nevertheless does remain an interesting story uh, probably to be told around those two and maybe at some time in the future we will have you guys back on to uh, to discuss those as i'd certainly enjoy hearing about some of those issues but but yeah for now we're going to wrap this up and good luck to the hunters out in oregon and washington the remainder of the season this episode these episodes will probably be coming out in january so you'll still have some time afield i think by that time brandon kyle thank you so much for your time and for sharing your expertise on this particular topic. Yeah, appreciate the opportunity to share a little bit about the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, definitely good to talk to you, Mike. So appreciate it. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, as well as our previous episode, Brandon Reiches, Migratory Game Bird Coordinator for Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife, and Kyle Spragans, Waterfowl Section Manager for Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work he does editing these podcasts. And then, of course, to you, our listeners, we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.